Hi friends, I'm Rob Voigt, and this is Protopia. This is a series of conversations with the people that are envisioning a better world and making it our new reality. We'll be talking about successes and failures, about next steps and those important first steps, and the inspirations and journeys that have brought us together in this time, in this place. And we'll find out where we go from here. Today I'm speaking with Miguel Angel Vasquez. He's the immediate past chair of the APA Diversity Committee, president of the California Planning Roundtable, and the Health Equity Urban and Regional Planner for Riverside University Health System. He's also the key catalyst for launching FEEL, Planning for Health Equity, Advocacy and Leadership. He is a person who takes action. Miguel has great abilities in human observation, empathic understanding and creative communication. These make him unique in our shared profession of urban planning. He is an inspiration, and as you will hear, an example of how openness to creative expression can broaden your experiences and your impact on the world. I hope you enjoy my conversation with my friend Miguel. Good morning, Miguel. How you doing? Glad you could join me. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're doing great. That is such a welcome thing to hear, given where we are right now, the amount of misery and suffering that we've all in various ways have uh, had to deal with. You know, how, how can you say great? Because there's a lot of folks out there like my world's upside down. So wh- oh. where, where does that perspective come from? Absolutely. Well, number one, you know, I was spared from a lot of the externalities that came as a result of COVID-19. I didn't get the disease. No one in in my circle, in my family uh, were infected. So that in itself, I think, is, is a reason for me to be grateful. And, you know, when I say grateful, I feel great. There's a connection with that. And yes, I, I, I cannot disregard, you know, what we've all gone through. It's been painful, even more so for some than for others. And in my case, it has been also a time for reflection and just recalibrating myself. You know, I work for public health. And one of the things that I've been paying more attention to right now, which is really, really important, but sometimes I think, at least on my end, I haven't really paid too much attention. And it's the idea of of how much you weigh, you know, I'm overweight. And in just the past, I don't know, four, six weeks, I was able to lose 12 pounds. And that in itself... I mean, I feel younger. <laughs> I feel great because, you know, I can run. And, and you see that connection between happiness and in how you feel. So the pandemic really propelled me to finally change some, some of my eating habits and how I stay physically active. So this morning I, I can be here present and, and happy. To, to share with you. My mind is clear. And yeah. What I'm hearing there is, is that connection 
body, mind, spirit that can allow you to obviously be accepting of the circumstance and, and empathetic to what others are going through in your world, you're able to be more present, feeling physically better, but also does prepare you to serve others in, in, the, in the work you do. If you're not coming from a great place yourself, you know, how, how do you put that aside? Yeah. And, you know, another piece with the pandemic is that, you know, it's an infectious disease, right? So, so the idea of infection, I think you can infect people with good feelings of, or feelings that are not so good, right? And to be able to do that infection, I think it comes from you, from how you feel. It's not necessarily that I'm going to infect people with how great I feel, right? Or I'm going to uh, infect people with feeling down. Maybe some people use that as a strategy, but it's just the nature of humanity. When we encounter people who, who, who are feeling good, we want to be around them. And when we encounter you know, people who are not feeling so well, we don't want to, to be around them. So I think there's an opportunity to acknowledge that and hopefully the ones who feel great for whatever reason are able to bring in those who may not be feeling as great. And I think the conversation we're going to have today probably will have to do with a little bit of that. You know what, you're, you're touching on a recognition of some of the basics of human nature. And that unfortunately, from what I've seen, you know, one person's opinion as a professional planner, that has been removed so much from what we do. There is a lot of lip service given to it from everything from those things that we refer to as, you know, public engagement or community development work, all the way to urban design. We have somehow managed to eliminate all understanding of, of basic human nature in an effort to take what is a, a social science, what is a field of generalists, and try to make it more, more of a pure math, if I can kind of talk about it that way. I think what you're saying there and that understanding of that human nature is, is critical. So has that always been there? Is it something that you have, have honed you know, what role does it play, particularly since you're at that intersection of planning and, and public health? Yeah, that's uh, a question. I, th I don't think I have, I haven't given it much thought in that sort of way. Uh, where my empathy comes from, I think that is really powerful. I think it comes from reflection from your own actions. As a child or as a young man, I remember not being very nice to my brothers. And, you know, sometimes you say, well, that's part of growing up, right? Mm -hmm. And it's true. It is part of growing up. But the way you act is based on how others behave, you know, within your family, your street, your neighborhood, your city. You know, it gets bigger and bigger. It comes down to, I think, culture. And sometimes your culture may accept certain things that are not so, so nice for some people. And at some point, 
we have the capacity to discern what makes people feel good and what makes people feel bad. And I think when it comes to empathy, it's getting to the point in which you acknowledge that you may have caused some type of harm, either directly or indirectly, or just by being passive, not acknowledging that, you know, some people are being, I would say, harm, if you will, or, mm. or understanding the suffering mm. of people at whatever level that is, you know, because suffering and happiness, there's a, a continuum. And you can find yourself, you know, at the very bottom of at the very high and everything in between. So I think empathy really means that you are at a higher level than those who are feeling down or suffering. So once you're able to acknowledge that and, and see people are in those circumstances, I think if you say, oh man, I mean, look at that, that fellow is, is going through some really rough times rather than, eh, I don't care, uh, you know, what's going on with that individual. Yeah. And once you acknowledge that, then you can be, become sympathetic to that individual. And then once you get to that point of sympathy, hopefully there's an action that you can take to alleviate the pain. And sometimes even just uh, saying hi to somebody. It's very simple. Sometimes I think we think that is you know, monumental what needs to be done to be empathetic and to help people alleviate you know, their pain. Right. A lot of our work in those areas of, of, um, of urban planning and public health, particularly where they intersect, there's always these, these interventions, these things that we can do for communities and, and that sometimes we end up doing them to communities. Uh, we're lucky if we're doing them with communities. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't end up there as, as much as we should. But again, it's that, that human connection and getting people to realize that there's ways that we can find that common ground. And even when you're mentioning your experience and recognizing that, that reflection on the culture within which you grew up, by being able to do that, I think that helps you also see how other cultures, uh, in the broadest sense of what that means, how you can work with them. Uh, so what happens when there are folks that you might have um, significant disagreements with, right? Those things that would fall under their culture of how they view the world and, and you have a different perspective. Uh, and then the second part of that is, how does that relate to, given your background, when you're asked directly or indirectly to, to represent? Before I, I, I'll answer that question, also part of that experience uh, on a personal level, you know, I've been, I, I suffered before. We all suffer. I mean, who doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. And during those moments of feeling down or needing uh, somebody to, to, to be sympathetic, I have had people do that for me. So I have experience on that level, you know, what it feels. So, 
I think it's important to think about the rule of feeling in everything we do, in, you know, as planners, it's about feelings. But sometimes I think you mentioned it earlier, and I don't know exactly how you, you said it, but when you were describing our profession, I think sometimes we as a profession, we come to communities with poker faces. We are government, bureaucrats, professionals, we know how to do this, and we are unable to make a connection. And the connections really are made through feelings, right? You know, at what level do you understand, in this case, one culture or not? So from the point of view, if we want to talk about myself, so I am Mexican. Sometimes I struggle with my own identity. Some people say here in the United States, I, I'm white or I'm black. And, you know, it seems like, wow, it's pretty defined. It's like, okay, cool. But I am a mixture of who knows what. I've been to Peru and people thought that I was Colombian. I, uh, one time I was working in retail and somebody thought that I was Polish. I was once in Paris and people came to me speaking Italian, asking for directions. I was like, okay, <laughs> um, none of that. I, and I'm curious. I like to be able to get one of those kids to find out who I am. Uh, but anyway, I fall within the Latinx community. And I think that's how I am able to find where I belong, if you will. If we want to be in boxes, or if we want to, um, not necessarily if we want to be, but I think our system has created these boxes or compartments of belonging. And, and some people feel really comfortable within those boxes. But there's, there's people like myself who like to visit Mingo <laughs> with the other boxes, you know, what people are, what they're all about. And that, you know, begins, I think, with curiosity. But anyway, when people, I think, look up to me as being the, the person who would represent the Latinx communities, I think it's, it, it's effective in the sense that sometimes in our bureaucracies, we don't really have the time to really build the kinds of relationships that we want because it takes time. So, you know, there's always a, a, an opportunity to begin, to, to build that relationship. So if you are not at the point where you already have a relationship, I, I am, uh, my role is to make those connections because people see me as themselves in a position that is connected to uh, planning government. And, and, you know, in this case, in public health. Yeah. So in a way, I'm not necessarily a spokesperson, but a bridge. That is my role when it comes to, to that. I, I'm, a, I'm a bridge builder. And, and that is, you know, my experience. Uh, others probably experience that in a different way. And, you know, and actually that, that uh, it's, it's all complicated. You know, sometimes I, I, I met people who 
may look Latinx, right? And, and they have expressed that, you know, while they may look Latinx, they don't speak Spanish. But some people, when they see him as somebody from that group, they're showing the Spanish. And the person is like, whoa, I don't speak Spanish. I'm, I don't know what you're talking about. So sometimes that almost that perception of who you are and where you belong may actually create, you know, um, not necessarily suffering, but it may bring you down because you may be like, you know what, I'm not that and I don't want to be that. This is who I am, but how do you express to the world specifically who you are? So, so yeah, this is a, an interesting and complicated question that I think... Um, it's pretty philosophical and for, you know, if anyone is asked, if anyone will want to answer that question, I don't think there's a, you know, like a yes and no answer, <laughs> as you said, you have to dig. And, and that's what I'm digging right now. <laughs> so yeah. this is really good. It is a real challenge. And, and I, I like the way that you're, you know, you're talking about the boxes of, of belonging, but clearly it is, it's fluid and it's about some of it is even when you're in, you have certain roles and responsibilities, you know, at a certain moment, you are now a representative of an organization doing a thing. Uh, at other times you are, you know, the neighbor being involved in that environment. And I, I like your cautions about uh, the assumptions. I mean, how many times have we heard that? And, and maybe that is one thing that, uh, our profession and those people that are trying to make the world a better place, we can't be reminded of that often enough, right? Always, always check yourself, always check yourself and the circumstance you're in. Because if we are going to move towards incremental improvement in making this a better world, it, it can't be based on those kinds of assumptions. It needs to be driven uh, with those connections in mind and our understanding of where we're coming from. You can call them biases or what have you, but they're the context, the framework that we've set up for how we're viewing the world. You mentioned about this idea of being a bridge builder, and that's how we first connected. And it was at the time you were looking at how to connect art and artists within the realm of urban planning and, and how we make uh, our communities better. Can you give me a bit more understanding of you know, how you came to that? What are some of the, the successes that you saw from that perspective and how that keeps moving forward? Maybe what, what's the future of that as well? Sure, sure. And, and lately I've been doing a little bit of thinking on that for many reasons, but growing up, one of the things that I really enjoyed as a kid was drawing. I just love it, you know, using pencils and paper, crayons. I remember always liking to draw that classic scene that probably all kids draw where you have some hills and the sun is rising. And then there's, you know, a field in the foreground and maybe you would add some, some birds and some clouds. You know, that scene, I don't know why I drew that, I guess, quite often. So anyway, as a result of discovering that I, I really like to draw, I noticed that I 
that I was good at it at some point that I could copy things. And I had, a, I think, a good, a good hand with the pencil. And then combining that with my own creativity, you know, I could do all these crazy things, right, that I love. I mean, they, they probably looked awful, but I love them. They spoke something, communicating, I guess, what I was feeling or thinking. So anyway, I, I think at some point I wanted to, I wanted to become an artist. And maybe I expressed that to my mother when I was maybe 13 years old. <laughs> and what she said to me, she pretty much laid down the reality. <laughs> she said, okay, fine. Uh, if you want to be an artist, it's, it's good. But uh, just be mindful that you will struggle. So if you want to be a starting artist, go for it. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> uh, maybe I should think about this. And instead, I decided to actually study agriculture. And I went to a university in Mexico City to study that. During that process, when I was discovering that I love drawing and the arts and looking at picture books, going to, to museums, I saw that I, it was kind of my element, right? But one of the things that I discovered that is, I think, really relevant is that I began to love maps. My mother was a, seams, a seamstress. So she knew how to design a dress or any kind of attire, right? And I remember I had this assignment once to, to draw a map. You know, they give dimensions and the dimensions were larger than your regular sheet. And I wanted this map to look exactly as the map that I was going to copy. And my first drawing was awful. You know, it didn't look anything like, like the map. And I guess that's part of the, when I was discovering my nature of how I wanted certain things to be. So she taught me how to draw to scale, which is basically you draw a grid on your base drawing and then you draw the same grid, but on a larger piece of paper. And then you just copy what's in that little tiny square. And you just go with those lines. And then you step back and you look at your drawing. And then that's exactly what, it, you know, how you, you copy something that is, uh, can be pretty precise. So since then, I began to make maps for my friends or for school projects. And, and I guess, you know, people were, they didn't know the secret <laughs> of how I was making my maps, right? So it, there was this uh, almost secret technique, you know, that, that is out there, but not everybody knew it, but because my mom had these patterns to make, you know, a dress smaller or bigger, but it's still the same dress. And I think because of that experience, maybe that's one of the reasons I wanted to become a, an, agri uh, an agronomist, an agricultural engineer. Eventually, when I had the opportunity to study planning, well, to actually to go to a four-year school, I decided to study geography. Now, I went to school for many, many years. But to make it short, uh, and when I say school, I went to community college 
for, for a lot of years uh, once I came to the U.S. because I had to learn the language. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to learn English first. I came from Mexico City. So once I transferred to a you know, community college to do two years, uh, at the end, I decided to study, study geography. At the end of my first year, I discovered planning. And that's when I saw that geography was dynamic, that you could apply all the, you know, the, the, the different things that you learn about people and places, but you actually use other tools to improve communities. So one of the exercises that I did when I was in the, in the geography department was to create a map we were learning how to do digital elevation models. And the map that I selected to do was from a community in here in Riverside County in, in the Temecula area. And we learned how to integrate colors into this map. And I created this map with this gradient between red and blue, red being the highest elevation in the blue, the lowest elevation. We created a shaded relief map of that area, just the topography, no, no roads, no, no homes, nothing, because it's all numbers, right? And when I saw it, when I saw my, my end product, I was like, wow, this is a piece of art. Now, part of my experience is also, I am a professional picture framer. So when I saw that, I was like, I'm gonna frame this map. So I framed it. And if we have some time, I can go grab it in a little bit and show you what it is. But it looked really amazing. So I took it to the class and Dr. William Bowen, who was the, the professor teaching that class, he looked at it and he's like, wow, this is super cool. And he just took it with him and he started showing it around. <laughs> You know, that map was telling a story, but you were not looking at it as a map. You were looking at it as something that was colorful and interesting and it sort of grabbed your attention. So I think from that experience, that's when I started, once I became a practicing planner, I thought that there was a need to communicate planning processes, which are pretty complex sometimes and they're hard to understand. So I thought, okay, what if we use art, you know, in that sort of way mm -hmm. to communicate what we do so that people, instead of me telling somebody what it is, they can be curious and ask, so what is this? What are you looking at? And then you say, oh, well, this represents housing. Let's think about housing now. And then we can take the conversation to density in how cities and towns are you know, comprised of different ways, yeah, ways of living. So that was the, the idea behind art and planning. So I, I was able to get a, a bunch of artists and planners to, to work on a project that did just that about 10 years ago, actually. And through my involvement with APA, the American Planning Association, currently I am chairing the Arts in Planning Interest Group which was the brainchild of a planner who works in Boston, Jennifer Erickson, who I met 
while we served on the APA Diversity Committee. And she's an artist. And she's the one who saw also that connection between planning and the arts. And she took it to, you know, a level that is now more becoming embedded within the American Planning Association. Uh, hopefully before the end of the year will become a division of APA. So in a nutshell, <laughs> that's what it is. You know, look at all those, those threads there. You really physically and then metaphorically reframed the discussion there, right? You, you put a frame around this bit of information and it changed perceptions. And I, I love how you're talking about presenting the information to people in a way that's easier to understand or more palatable or all those things that does that already, but that you highlighted something that is inherent in art is that there's different interpretations. And so what you, you mentioned the idea of that it's, it drives the curiosity, which leads to questions and conversation. It's actually delivering it in a whole different way that it goes beyond the understanding so that you as the practitioner, the professional can understand them, create that dialogue, create those connections, which is great because it's beyond just information design or information architecture and clarity of message and, and you know, all things, you know, to simplify graphic design kind of perspective. It's about changing how the information is received or are offering that it could be received in a different way. Yeah. And, you know, and actually that is exactly how you and I met because I saw your video and the video you developed to, to showcase active transportation. And you created this really interesting and short narrative with, uh, with drawings. Yeah, it was the, it was the, the paper craft uh, stop motion animation. Uh, and I still make these. Uh, so it's been, yeah, it's got to be 10-ish years. And I, I hand drew these, these cartoon figures and then would do stop motion, you know, taking hundreds or thousands of images of them to create this story with the voiceover and that. It, it worked, right? I know they've been translated into uh, Spanish, um, French, German, and Polish as well. You know, some of them have been featured in kind of, you know, small scale. Um, for me, one of the reasons I was doing them, and this is a thing that has driven my profession, my eldest son, who now just celebrated his 17th birthday, uh, but when he was three and a half, uh, he said to me, um, the, the more I play, the larger my world does become. And that floored me uh, because it was just, it was, to me, it was a very powerful statement. And I have actually found that in my work, that truly the more I play, the larger my world does become. And that was an expression of that. That's how my world got larger by connecting to you and continues right. to get larger. It's enjoyable. It shifts everything about me physically. Again, I feel different. My mindset becomes different if I'm bringing play and creativity into it. Um, I definitely don't feel as constrained or bogged down. 
And if you're not in that positive mindset, how can you drive towards improvement? If your focus and attention is on to negatives and things that are challenges, how do you get beyond that? I'm not saying you ignore them, but you need to be to try to be in that place as much as possible. Right. And that's what you do for yourself. And, and that is how we connected. And it's been, it's been an interesting uh, uh, a journey. And yet because of where you are on the continent and where I am, uh, we've, we've still have yet to meet uh, in person. <laughs> and, I, and I'm We're very much closer now through zoom. We can have yes. this dialogue. Yeah. And, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, and, Actually, that brings me to, you know, one of the other things that you did, and I think partially because of the capabilities of, of, of Zoom, I'm trying to find um, a positive or a, a way of shifting this terrible circumstance of, of the global health crisis. You helped spearhead this idea of, of, uh, of the FEEL initiative. Yeah, yeah, of course. So FEEL stands for Planning for Health Equity Advocacy and Leadership. And what that is, is a set of principles to do just that. And when I think of what these principles are in the way that one of my colleagues who actually named the project, uh, Dr. Eddie Hara, he refers to them as nuggets of wisdom. And that's what they are because we were able to develop them by bringing close to 70 professionals from, from throughout North America, because that includes you, you know, being in, in Canada. And they were professionals from different disciplines, including planning, architecture, engineering, urban design, artists, community-based advocates, with the idea of codifying how can we come out of the pandemic with a new set of thinking. And not necessarily new, because we have been talking about those principles pre-COVID-19. But I think there was a need to bring, to bring all these voices together to create this unified message about what sort of thinking anyone involved in in the planning, design, and, and maintenance of cities, how they should think about it when it comes to ensuring that harms that have been created by our practices are hopefully alleviated, mitigated, and prevented. So we have our existing built environment. And some of it is really toxic for some communities. And some of those communities have been living in this toxicity for centuries. But still, uh, I think today, there's many places that lack basic infrastructure, basic mm -hmm. human needs of clean water, clean air, infrastructure, basic infrastructure that could prevent injury or death. And you know, a, a sidewalk, for instance, is that simple. And there's so many deficiencies out there that are packed in certain places. We, we acknowledge that these communities exist 
in that is part of a, a system that has perpetuated those disparities. One of the definitions that we created, and I can't remember exactly how we phrased it, but it's basically that field is intended to put a spotlight on communities that have historically been overburdened with health disparities. So we want health for all, right? But for all to, to be healthy, we need to look at those communities that have been excluded from the benefits of complete communities, if you will. So, so that's what those principles are. I am just one uh, link from those who came before me when injustices began to develop to the scale that we see today. Well, you're the bridge builder. I am the bridge builder. So that's how, well, I guess I use my, my skills in this particular case to, to bring people who I knew, people who I knew about who were in this space, who had the kind of wisdom that was needed to, to bring to the table. So pretty much I, I think the, the, the way that I built the, the group was through LinkedIn in, you know, in a similar way of how I found you or how we met, we met through that platform. But yes, you are correct. The feel was or is an outcome of the pandemic. So a couple of things. One, I didn't really know about the meaning of equity before I started working for the Department of Public Health, where I'm at right now. It is a concept that was widely known by public health practitioners and advocates, not so much by planners. I would consider myself as being on top of what's out there in the planning field. And don't get me wrong, things have been put forward in our profession to advance equity in planning. But the the level to which planners know about what that is or or the implications. I think we've, we've danced around the edges of it. There's aspects of it that are yes. that are there but it's it hasn't been named and recognized and and therefore the attention has not been paid to it and it's not ingrained in in how most um, of the profession has functioned for many many decades right right so i learned about the you know what it meant and how different equity is from equality I'm going to share how I learned it and how it was explained to me by a high school student. He explained that equality could be, he used the metaphor, and he said it's it's like having a group of people, women, children, men, old people, young people, disabled people, all of them in one room and giving them all the same shoe, whatever brand, size nine. You need shoes, there you go. Now, can a, can a baby walk on a nine size shoe? One size does not fit all. 
Mm-hmm. And that's equality delivering the same for everybody. Equity, it means giving everyone the same shoe, but the right size, the right fit. And perhaps it doesn't have to be the same shoe. The shoe may have to be different. It's about enabling people to walk comfortably. That's one way to understand equity. So there's two different things. And I think both of them have, you know, merits. You know, we want everyone to to have opportunities to, to thrive. But those opportunities, they have to be the right fit. There are some people who need more because they have been precluded. Tools are not even around. I mean, it's just as simple as that. So that is where all this thinking related to equity, and in my case, we think about health equity, because you may have a part, but the part may be unsafe, may be deteriorated. You may not want to use it. So, so there's obstacles, even though you may have a part. So what is the remedy for that? Who deals with that? When the pandemic hit, people started thinking about the new normal. And I was concerned. I was concerned about the new normal, that this new normal would be the old normal. Let's go back to the way we were. As, it, as it, was I, I mean, many conversations early on, it, for me, it was a lot of people quickly trying to figure out how to go back to what was. And then this idea that we would come out with some utopian vision of the future, which was also not going to work. Your utopia or mine? You know, whose? So for me, it was very much about, well, how do we make sure that whatever it is, is better on that, it sounds like we had very similar experiences because there was, uh, and still is, a very strong push to, again, back to normal or you know, build back better. All these things are just it's 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 trying to return to all kinds of systems uh, and ways of living that weren't working that weren't working for an awful lot of people. That's kind of partially how you got to to that point of seeing that feel needed to be something that was launched now. There was an element of urgency. And we've tried to do this work before, but there's bureaucracies. There's always, oh, well, how are you going to pay for this? How are you going to bring people together? So it was just, I think the pieces were in place. It was the right moment. That's when we started using Zoom. I think that in itself was a tool that enabled this project tool to exist. If I wanted to do the same project before COVID-19, I would have had to, you know, write a grant proposal for, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to fly everyone into a location. That's the way we used to do things. But with this platform that we're forced to use, I mean, really, to be able to communicate in the way that we're doing it, we were able to to bring people together to have this conversation. And they all did it. All the participants were there on their own time. No one asked for uh, some sort of honorarium or anything. And to the day, we still have a 
steering committee that volunteers to continue to uh, now promote the, the principles and be more action oriented. And my hope as we were beginning to conceptualize the content, I was hoping or, or I really wanted to make sure that people would bring forward racial equity. If we look at public health models, the best ones that point out to how to solve pretty much all the social determinants of health that are not working for these historically overburdened communities with health disparities, we need to address racial inequalities. We need to confront racism. Mm -hmm. And that is the hardest part to do. It's difficult to open up the conversation because you know what? There is global pain, trauma about it. And all of us are part of it. All of us in one way or another. So we intend to be able to heal. And, you know, that healing process is it's not going to happen, you know, in the next month or so. It's a process. And, and as you said, when George Floyd... And, and Breonna Taylor were, were killed. That was in the middle, that happened in the middle of our process for developing the principles. And that just created the dynamic to go deeper into what we wanted to come to the surface in the field principles. So, so yeah, we completed the project in less than a year. It was it was just like wow, yeah, projects like those take you know, they could take two years. Oh, easily, yeah. Lots of money to do, and we received a lot of support from many different individuals. One who I really want to acknowledge is Dr. Mariela Alfonso. She is the CEO of a private firm called State of Place. And she was very generous by donating web space. So she's hosting the principles in her website until we are able to find, you know, a permanent home, if you will. It's interesting that when you look at the way the FEEL initiative evolved, you really <coughs> use the, in many ways, I think some of the same principles that you would see with sort of um, community work around sort of asset-based community development where you're looking at the assets and the gifts that people are willing to share. You know, the, the resounding response to that was quite extraordinary. And I think that it really speaks to not only the time, but also that approach it just makes um, a lot of these things move forward uh, in a way that's more effective. It's something about you being that catalyst, that bridge to bring together these assets and then and then letting it evolve into something and allowing it also to openly shift. So you had a real open dialogue, you know, the, the principles that you were going to run the project, not the ones that came out of the project, but the parameters, let's say, of how you wanted to move forward with those situations that we saw and an unveiling perhaps of, of some of those very serious racial issues that became emblematic of so many problems you allowed or the system of this project allowed itself to change the dialogue and bring that equity 
and into the forefront, which again, if you would have gone, let's call it the old school way, how, how do you reconcile? Well, now the grant didn't say you could do that. And so your reporting structure to whoever gave you the money was <clears> like, well, that's not the area we're going to focus in. And yet that's what that community of professionals needed to work on. There's a lot here that allows us to see that those successes are about recalibrating projects and letting them evolve to what they need to be. And, and, you know, going back to that idea of empathy, uh, you know, empathy, I think there's many different dimensions to that. One way to, to develop that is to create relationships, get to know people, because they will understand you. They will know when you have needs, right? And, and they may feel the same suffering that you feel. So they may want to join forces to, to get you and themselves out and others, obviously. But I was just thinking about that uh, for a minute because, you know, as I acknowledge uh, Dr. Alfonso, I was also thinking the role of two other individuals because I think empathy played into that. One of them is Esther Greenhouse, who works for ARP International. And I met her actually at the end of 2019 after I received an invitation to be part of developing principles for equity that uh, ARP International was working on. So I was part of a working group that was led by, by her and also Stephanie Firestone, who directly works with ARP International. When I started thinking about Phil, I guess I was also already in kind of principle mode because they had planted that idea in my head. So I would say that the way that the success of the project had a very strong foundation because Esther really helped to design the right questions, you know, just simple questions and get people to focus on what we were looking for. Eventually others got involved in other pieces, but Esther provided the foundation for a great project. A foundation based on the right questions. Right. Oh, but what I wanted to say is that she was empathetic to me when I reached out. I asked for help. I was like, okay, you know, I, uh, I have this idea. Come join me. These are the issues. And, and she felt compelled to extend the helping hand. And, you know, she, like everybody else, was also going through the effects of the pandemic. So sometimes I think being on the same sort of um, situation helps us build a stronger, I don't know, working relationship because we find we can heal ourselves. That's fantastic. It reflects, again, some of the other things that you've said in terms of the different boxes of culture we find ourselves in, and they're very fluid, or have a, an appreciation of each other's circumstance, then mm-hmm. you can move forward. And before I kind of turn it over to you for a last comment on, on maybe how you see the future evolving and making the world a better place in, in whatever part you're working in or others... 
but you said there that you reached out and asked for help and look what that happened on, you know, with this feel initiative. I'm not, I don't think I'm overstating it, but you look at early, early, early on in your career, you're asking your mother for help on something that would actually be the trajectory that took you to this place. And it was these two women provided it early on much later next level Whereas maybe the question, the last question to you is, do you know yet where you're going to be asking for help to make the world a better place? I think <laughs> go to LinkedIn, <laughs> connect with strangers. I do that all the time. And I have met the most fascinating people ever. Uh, made. I mean, there's you, for example, right? Um, and, and many of the individuals who I reached out for feel were connections that I, I had. I, I knew they were awesome and I followed their work and I was like, okay, this individual has wisdom. So I curated the group in a sense. And I think I asked for, I don't know, 200 people in, in 70 came forward. Some of them didn't reply. Uh, some of them who I, obviously I didn't know they were probably, who's this crazy guy, this LinkedIn connection that I have. He wants me to do something. So that is very practical to connect with strangers. You can be strategic as to who do you want in your circle? Not necessarily always to collaborate, but to know what they're doing so that you can also maybe be inspired. And when a moment like COVID-19 happens, you reach out and you say, hey, I have this going on or anything, you know, a project, why not? Let's collaborate. <clears throat> right now, actually today in half an hour, I have a call with somebody who I met <laughs> at a virtual conference. We're developing actually a planning curriculum. She's in New Orleans. And that's what she does. She does educational curriculums for uh, young people, high school students. So we're working on a pylon. And, and I just you know, met her and she told me about what she did. I told her about what I do. And then I said, hey, what if we do something together? So last week we had our first meeting and we're on a roll. <laughs> Again, you have your compass bearing. Now you're going to be on a journey together on something great. So connect people, everyone, connect with people, people who are different than you. Whatever you think you are, don't go for those who you think, oh, they're like me. Connect with people who you're like, okay, that person is different. I'm going to connect with that people, whatever your perception is. So that's uh, those are my last words. Thank you that's so awesome. much. That was it, my friend. I got that fun. Um, you, you have a gift for putting people at ease and you make really great connections. You listen. I had a lot of fun. So my day is still great. <laughs> Excellent.